<laughs> Thank you. My biggest uh, hype man right there is my husband. <laughs> uh, my name is Pastor SB. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastoral care pastor here. Andrew always asks me to say this, even though I say it every time I come up, I feel like so. I feel like I repeat it a lot, but it's helpful for those of you who don't know. I really just focus on the heart health of our community. Uh, my bread and butter is really our leadership. It's really building solid leaders, uh, building emotionally, spiritually healthy leaders, um, and so in empowering young people to step into their call. That's really what I feel like God is, a big, big reason God has put me on this earth is to empower young people. And so I am really honored to speak today, even just to give Pastor Andrew a Sunday off. Can we just say thank you for what he put into this last sermon series? Guys, if, I don't know if that blessed you guys, but that blessed me so much. Um, somebody who's been walking with the Holy Spirit for years and years and years to just get like a theologically sound understanding of the things that you laid out. I think me and everybody else has just been so tremendously blessed by that. And so I'm excited to give you a Sunday off today so you could just rest. I'm going to go ahead and pray and dive right on in. So Jesus, thank you so much for today, Lord. Oh, Lord, we are here to meet with you. We're here to encounter you. I believe you have some things you want to do today. Let's not waste this day. Let's not waste this moment to encounter you, to grow deeper with you, to grow in intimacy with you, God. It is all about you, Lord, today. It's in your precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Okay, so today I want to just start by telling you guys a story of a young boy, story of this young boy who actually grew up in a really, really broken home, a really painful home, a really traumatic childhood and upbringing. Uh, he had a grandfather who was a raging alcoholic, a mother who was an alcoholic, a father who was an alcoholic, and at the age of 15, I believe that this young boy, uh, he had just he had just had enough. He couldn't take it anymore in his house, watching the things that was happening to him and his siblings, to his mother. Um, he couldn't take it anymore. And at 15 years old, he left his home. He ran away and he actually built his own home with his bare hands, a 15-year-old kid. Guys, can you even imagine that? <laughs> 15-year-old boy built his own home, raised himself. He didn't have parents to help him. He didn't have anybody to teach him, to encourage him, uh, to equip him. He raised himself from this, uh, from this point on, and he as well fell into alcoholism at the age of 15. Uh, he became an addict, and it ruled his life. It absolutely ruled his life. He wasn't able to finish school. He wasn't able to do much of anything. The very thing he literally ran away from <laughs> he fell into as well. It was probably his worst, most unimaginable fear was to turn into his father. Years later, this boy gets married. He has his own child. Um, and again, this child actually inherits the same addiction. The same thing falls. It's this cycle that wasn't broken. And now in this story, you see four generations of addicts. The same sin passing through four generations, a grandfather to his son, to his son, to that person's child. It's, it's unbelievable, and we see this all the time. We see these generations of sin, generational sin, that passes through, and I think we have to stop pretending like this is an accident. That the same sin, that's not normal, guys for the same sin to pass on and on and on and on. And I believe that there's a number one tactic of the enemy in this, is that he has an open door that he uses to keep sin falling from generation to generation. And today I really wanna talk about that open door that I feel like the enemy uses time and time again. And as, as intense as 
I believe the addiction of alcoholism is or whatever that sin is, I think what's really happening is the open door that the enemy is using to continue these patterns is unforgiveness. I believe this is a sneaky little trap that the enemy uses to keep us bound and to keep the cycles of sin continuing. You look at this little boy and what happened, we understand cognitively, he must have known, okay, I shouldn't ever touch alcohol. Like he, he must have known that because it's generations past him. But what he didn't know is he didn't have the tools to forgive his father. And all of the pain, all of the trauma, it was too much. And I believe through that open door of unforgiveness, of him not knowing how to let go his father, who when we actually hold unforgiveness against somebody, we actually carry them with us everywhere we go. That's what happens when we don't release somebody from the pain that they've caused us or from the hurt, is you're carrying them with you. And so this little boy, he carried his dad with him by not knowing how to forgive him. Not forget what he did or not say what he did was okay. Not that by any means, but releasing him for his own sake, not for his dad's. Because who knows when you're holding unforgiveness, it actually only hurts you, not the person that you're trying to hurt. It only hurts you. Unforgiveness always starts with unprocessed pain. And I'm not gonna go into heavy load of talking about emotions today. Don't worry, Andrew. I love talking about emotions. It's my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, if you wanna learn about emotions, go, to, go find my last sermon. But it is always a state of unprocessed pain that unforgiveness stems from and grows from. It's a really, really painful place that we haven't acknowledged. And then we feed it. We feed that place over and over and over. And it slowly grows into this ugly thing of unforgiveness in our hearts. I would actually propose unforgiveness as a state of control. And what I mean by that is when somebody hurts you, when somebody offends you, whether it's small or big, uh, you feel a loss of control in that moment. When somebody comes against you, you feel like I have no control in this moment. I don't feel safe. And I feel like there's this, this little thing that creeps in of, well, if I can be mad at you, and if I can hold unforgiveness against you, then that actually protects me and I feel safe again. I feel like I have control again. If I can put you over there and say, you really messed up, so I'm gonna be just angry at you, it makes you feel safe again in a weird way. This is kind of my definition of forgiveness in a really deep way, one that actually penetrates your heart, not just what we're saying, but what actually happens internally. I believe that forgiveness means giving up all your rights, your need to defend, your need for justice to be content, not saying that justice isn't good, God is a God of justice, and he loves justice, but we don't need justice to be okay within ourselves. I release this person from judgment even if I get nothing in return. I choose, choose with my will to release them even if they don't deserve it. This is kind of my, my understanding and belief around forgiveness. because who knows that when Christ forgave you, you didn't deserve it. We couldn't have done anything to earn it. It's freely given, freely received. And so I believe it's understanding, I'm not gonna, for, I'm not gonna forget and pretend like what this person did wasn't incredibly wrong. And there needs to be, there needs to be understanding of that, that we have to process the things that have happened to us but it's a choice with our will to release them in that moment. It's a choice. I believe a number one blockage for forgiveness when we get in these moments of we're holding on to something or we're holding on to a moment and we genuinely don't know how to release it. I believe the number one blockage is that you don't have love for that person. And that might make me sound kind of crazy because I know what it's like to be hurt. 
and some of us, we have such deep pains and such deep wounds from specific people that the idea of having love for them almost sounds completely impossible, maybe even irrational. But when we look at Jesus showing the most radical picture, the most beautiful, unbelievable picture of forgiveness that's ever been shown in the entire world on the cross, his number one motivation was love. And so if we're trying to obtain or step into at least, step into the forgiveness that he carries, we have to inherit his motivation, which is love. And so I have three things today that I want to talk about if you are having trouble releasing somebody. Maybe it's yourself. <laughs> you're having a hard time releasing yourself from something that you've done that you don't, you're still holding judgment over yourself. Maybe it's a person that's really hurt you. Um, these are my kind of three, three steps that I want to talk about that I think are what we need to do to be able to move into forgiveness. Number one is to repent for holding judgment or unforgiveness. This is never God's heart. We need to repent. We need to say, Jesus, I repent for stepping into your role as judge. I repent and I ask for you to help me. Number two is asking the Lord for a renewed perspective of that person and how he sees them. I guarantee you this will change things. I guarantee you. I had a moment when I was trying to release somebody from a lot of pain that they had caused me. And I remember asking the Lord for the very first time, I said, God, could you show me your heart for this person? He actually showed me this person that had hurt me so much as a little boy. I got this, this picture in my mind. Jesus speaks all the time and pictures he speaks in all different ways. Um, but for me, a lot of times I just have pictures go through my mind when he talks to me. And, and I had a picture of this little boy that I was trying to release and to forgive. And I saw him in the image that I saw in my head. He was alone in this corner and he was crying. And he looked like he was so hurt. And I could tell something really heavy and intense had just happened to him in this image that the Lord gave me. And instantly my heart was shifted because I knew that was the person that had hurt me as a child. Something happened to them. There's a reason they've done what they did. There's a reason. And so sometimes we need to imagine and understand how does God see this person? They're his child. They're his child. They're innocent and precious to him. So asking him for his perspective, that's number two. Number three is asking for Jesus' love towards that person to wash your perspective clean. And the one thing that I want to say about number three is that no matter, God could do this in an instant, but if you're not willing, there will be no freedom. You have to be willing and a lot of times what that means is you have to be willing to go into it. <laughs> you have to be willing to actually see that person and to remove your anger. Even it could be so strong. The anger could be so intense that you can barely even imagine love for this person. But you have to be willing to see them from the perspective that the Lord sees them. And ask God for his love for that person to come in in a big way. We genuinely can't do anything without Jesus. We can't do anything without him. And if we think that we can operate in forgiveness without Jesus, then I think we're playing ourselves. The act of forgiveness is so radical. It's so big when we understand it on a deep perspective. We cannot do this without the person who created it. He's the creator and the artist of forgiveness. We simply get to actually just open ourselves up, release control, and receive his forgiveness. I would even argue that I hear a lot of people come to me 
we'll do prayer, we'll do moments of inner healing, things like that. And I've had a lot of people come to me over the years and say this phrase of, I just can't forgive this person. I'm sure a lot of us have felt that way. We've been there at some point of our lives. And I hear this, I just can't forgive them. I've done everything I can possibly do and I can't let this person go. I would even argue that you're right. (laughs) That you actually can't really step into forgiveness without Jesus' forgiveness for that person. He already did the work of opening up this long, it's, it's like a river. It never stops. Forgiveness is not one time. It has to flow for the rest of your life. When you forgive somebody, it has to flow and flow and flow. And Jesus already created that river for you. You literally just have to get in. And so I would even say, there is no conjuring up forgiveness for anybody. We actually have to receive Jesus's forgiveness for that person because he already did it on the cross. He laid it out for you. He did all the work. And now we just have to step in to his forgiveness for that person. We say, God, if you've done what you did to forgive them, then the least that I can do is move myself into it and I'll receive your forgiveness for them. I wanna encourage you, just test it out. Say if you have a person and you felt that way of I just can't get past this, It's too painful. I just can't let this go. Test it out. I just want you to try it. I want you to say, okay, Lord, I see what you did for them and I will step into your forgiveness for them. I'm willing and I will move in to that for them. Let's go to 1 John 3, 14 to 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So here it's describing the fruit. It's saying if you've actually moved from death into life, the fruit has to match that. The fruit is that we love each other well. And not just like the garbage Southern thing that we do where we walk around and we smile and we say, hey, it's so good to see you. But then you're actually judging everybody in your heart. (laughs) You like go on Instagram and you're like, ooh, she looks like this. Why is she doing that? That's not okay. And the Lord's like, I actually don't really care how nice you are in person if your heart's ugly. Your fruit's not good. He's interested in internal fruit. The internal is supposed to define the external, not the other way around. You can't be so nice to people that it makes it okay what's happening inside. Anyone who does not love remains in death. You're actually keeping yourself in bondage by not extending God's love to that person. You're not hurting them. You're really just hurting yourself. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Guys, that's intense. Does anybody else think that's intense? Like, dang. Wow. You could just let that really rebuke you right there. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Guys, he's really interested in the internal fruit of your heart. He cares about our internal world so much more than we think he does. So much more than we think he does. So next I want to go to Matthew 5, 23 to 24. And I want to give a little preface in this. I want to say that as one of your pastors, if this is your home church, obviously I, I want this piece that I'm about to go into bless everyone, and I believe everybody can receive from this, but if breakthrough is your home, specifically, I have something I really want to say in this to you who are part of our body. It's a standard that we actually really care to uphold in this house. So Matthew 5, 23 to 24. 
So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that you're, or sorry, if you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. The Lord cares too much about us missing out on his presence because we're holding on to something that we were never supposed to hold on to in the first place. And I believe when I read this, what he's saying is, I mean, we've, we've all done this. We've all done this where we come into church and we're worshiping and we're singing and we're singing the louder we sing, we think that the Lord's not gonna, he's gonna pretend like we didn't just hold that judgment and unforgiveness against a person like the day prior. We're like, the louder I sing, I could just pretend like I'm not really angry at this person and I don't have hatred towards this person. I'm just gonna pretend. And the Lord's like, who do you think you're pretending with? I know what's going on in your heart. And I think what he's saying is, it's not that he doesn't love that you're coming to him. You're still willing to present your gift. You're still willing to lead worship. You're still willing to play an instrument. You're still willing to do whatever it is, whatever gift it is you're trying to bring. I think what he's saying though is, I would actually prefer the gift of your forgiveness right now. That's actually priority to me right now, is you going and reconciling with your brother. That would mean more to me right now than any other gift you have to give me. And so the piece that I want to talk about for people who this is your house, Breakthrough is your church, you're submitted here, this is your body. I want to ask you, who here really desires and wants to have a legitimate, healthy church culture? Who here is that a value for? Not just a good, safe church that I can go to and feel comfortable. I guarantee Breakthrough's not the church for you if you're just looking to be comfortable. You're not gonna be comfortable here. <laughs> it's, it's not very cozy. You will get pushed. You will get challenged. You're expected to grow here. We've all seen those church environments and cultures that it's just a little off. There's just not, there's something not right <laughs> there. And here we, we want from the inside out, we wanna have a healthy church body. I believe the number one thing coming against the church right now, at least in this day and age, is this nasty little thing called gossip and offense. <laughs> I wanna talk about gossip because it's ripping our churches apart. And I'm sick of it. I'm actually sick of it. <laughs> I want us to learn how to normalize going to our brothers and our sisters, and we have to remember that, we have to picture these people as our brothers and sisters, and saying, hey, what did you really mean by that? It's kind of simple, but I think if we could actually get that, it would change our churches. Our churches, our businesses, our everything would look different if we could just try out the simplicity of going to one another, not stopping along the way and talking to six people. Oh my gosh, this person did this thing. They're so terrible. I'm so pissed off. Can I say that? Um, <laughs> stop stopping along the way. Just go talk to them. Just go talk to them. Can we just make it normal saying, hey, what did you mean by that? Because when you said it, it kind of made me feel this way. Kind of made me feel a little rejected. Because what happens when we don't do that is we take on an offense. And so imagine, imagine somebody says something to you in passing, makes a joke. You're hanging out with a group of people at your church, somebody makes a joke about you. It was meant to be funny, but it actually cut a little bit. Anybody ever felt that before? It cut and you're like, oh, that didn't make me feel good. I know we're joking around, but I didn't feel great about that. You decide in your mind, gosh, they must really not like me very much. Anybody ever done that? They must really not like me. 
They must think that I'm like this or this or this. And then you go down this rabbit trail. The enemy loves to catch you in a rabbit trail. Let me tell you that. When you're trying to focus on the Lord, he loves to get you lost in your thoughts as far down as he can get you. And so in those moments, if we don't catch that offense immediately and saying, oh, I actually felt a little hurt in that moment. Let me check with them really quick what they meant. Because I guarantee when they didn't text you back, it didn't mean that they hated you. (laughs) It just meant that they didn't have their phone on them. And so maybe it means that in these moments, when we feel such deep offense, sometimes we really just need to see what was the motive in that moment? Because if their moment wasn't to kill us or to hurt us, then maybe we should shift our perspectives a little bit. The only one that's trying to kill you in those moments is Satan. He wants to get you in death more than anything else. He will do everything he could possibly do to keep reconciliation from happening in the body. We even had a situation recently in our house. Amazing people on both sides. Somebody was really hurt by a situation. The hurt grew and grew and grew and grew. A lot of it was valid, but the hurt was so intense that they began to see the people that hurt them in the wrong light. The further it get, the more the offenses build, you just keep feeding it and feeding it. It got to a place where it was like close to hatred of like, I, I don't wanna see this person. I don't trust them. I want nothing to do with them. They shouldn't even be leaders in the body. That's how intense it got. The enemy had too much rain in that situation. His opinion was given too much rain in that situation, not the Holy Spirit's opinion. And a few Sundays ago, the presence of the Lord was so intense. The worship was unreal. God was just moving so tangibly in the room. And, and you know, when the presence of the Lord is in the room, there's freedom. We don't have to force it. We don't have to mechanically engineer it. It's just organic and it's real. And it just falls when the presence of the Lord is in a room. And it's always genuine. But I was standing right over there and I looked over and these two people that had had so much hurt and offense against, I literally, it was one of those situations where I was like, I don't know if this one's gonna get reconciled. I have no clue. (laughs) And I look over and they're both sobbing hysterically holding each other. Guys, Two people that I was like, I have no clue if they'll ever speak again. And in the presence of the Lord, they're sobbing, holding each other, repenting. I've always heard of people, uh, people who have experienced like tangible manifest presence of the Lord falling in a room. Like Michael Miller talks about this. Um, When you know that real glory is breaking out in a room, you know it because repentance starts happening. I've heard Michael Miller and Michael Kulianos talk about this, where he was at a revival long, 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 long time ago. And the room, it was so intense. You just knew that the Holy Spirit was, was sitting on the room and it was so heavy and people left and right start standing up and literally screaming out their sins, repenting, repenting to the Lord. When God is present, repentance is present. And so if he's present in your life and you say that you know him, you know him in a real way, but you're holding on forgiveness, I don't really know who you know then. If you know him, repentance and unforgiveness will follow you. So as we've talked a lot about unforgiveness, I want to keep moving in and digging a little bit deeper in offense. Can we go there? Offense is always the first stepping stone to unforgiveness. Just like I said in that example, if we don't immediately stop ourselves after we've made an offense against somebody in our heart, even unknowingly, most of the time you're not intentionally trying to say, I'm gonna make an offense in my heart against this person. It just happens when we don't check our emotions with the Lord. If we don't immediately stop 
and release it to God, the rightful judge, in that moment, then we're putting ourselves in the seat of judge. We're putting ourselves in God's seat, saying, I actually have the best ability to judge here, Lord. I know that you said you're good at that, but I'll take this one. I got it, God, don't worry. I can judge this one because I can tell it's really, really bad. And I actually want to use it as a coping mechanism to feel better. When we judge people, when we get offended, offense is like a, in a perfect defense mechanism. Because when you're offended, you don't actually have to feel the hurt. You don't actually have to feel the pain. Because offense is a lot easier to feel than pain. Or rejection, or shame. So much easier to feel. Sarah Kramer, she says this thing about offense that I love. She says, you only get offended if you believe that there could be truth in what the person that's offending you is saying. Guys, this like completely changed my perspective of offense. There used to not be a clear cut way of understanding why do we get offended? Why do we not? Why did that joke not offend me? And I thought it was hilarious. And that joke did. I always jump back and forth between the balance and this perfectly sums it up. It's because you believe that there's truth in what they're saying. Somewhere deep down, when we get offended, it's because you think that there could be truth there. An example, um, imagine somebody who has, they graduated high school, they went to college, they got a master's, and somebody in a joke says to them, oh, you're so uneducated they're not gonna get offended. Cause they're like, I literally have my master's. Like I'm absolutely smarter than you. Like that's in the back of their, they're not gonna get offended by that joke because they have the proof and they know. They're like, what are you talking about? Of course I'm not indicated, that's silly. And you pass it on by. And then you take a person who, like the boy in the story that I told earlier today where he didn't even get to finish high school because he had to leave his house. And so for him, he couldn't go to college. He could barely make ends meet to feed himself as a 15-year-old. So imagine he, as an adult, there's a joke that's made about him being uneducated. He's, it's going to hit differently because he's going to go, oh, like somewhere deep down he actually believes that about himself, is that he's uneducated. People won't really listen to him because he doesn't have a high school diploma. There's truth there. That's when you get hurt. My favorite example of this in scripture is David and King Saul. I want to go to 1 Samuel 18, 6 to 8. This story is wild, y'all. It's wild. Literally, King Saul's entire falling out with David, this whole story is because of one honestly really stupid offense. It's so dumb. <laughs> All right, let's do it. First Samuel 18, 6 to 8. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry at him. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? He's literally mad because they're saying that David killed more people than him. If you've never seen ego, this is what it looks like, guys. And after that, you know the story, if you've read this, uh, King Saul, basically, from that one silly offense, and also backstory, King Saul is like David's mentor. It's like his spiritual father. This is somebody he admires and looks up to so greatly and so deeply. He loves him. They're practically family. They live together. And Saul's entire, uh, his entire goal and motive from this point on, from this one simple offense, is to kill David. 
the person he spent years mentoring, pouring into. And I wonder, I go back to that quote by Sarah Kramer, is in that moment where those women are singing, they're just being silly, and they're singing, he killed tens of thousands and you only killed thousands. If he goes somewhere in his heart, he believes that there could be truth there of David's actually more fit to be a king than he is. He's actually better than he is as a man. And I wonder if deep down in his heart in that moment, that's where the offense grew. It's because he believed there could be truth there. So the story goes, um, David has to run away. He literally flees for his life because Saul's like, I'm gonna kill you because the women like you better than me. He literally chases after him and not only by himself, he literally creates an entire army. The army goes after David to find him and kill him. David throughout this time has multiple opportunities to actually kill King Saul, multiple chances. He leaves, um, he leaves little notes as well to King Saul to show him, I could have killed you here and I didn't. And you can imagine, picture for, picture for David for a moment what this boy was going through. Can you imagine the most intense betrayal by the person you look up to and value the most? This isn't a friend. This is somebody he honored, looked up to, sought to be like. And he's trying to take his life with him doing literally nothing to to deserve it. He did nothing to deserve it. And so from there, we go to 1 Samuel 26, 7 to 12 to continue the story. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of a spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on his anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. So not only did the Lord actually put the entire army to sleep, they were all knocked out, they were not going to wake up, David also had his friend there saying, dude, let's kill him. It's your perfect opportunity. He's evil. He's killed thousands of innocent people. Let's take him right now. I won't even have to do it twice. It's easy. It was so laid out and so easy for David to get his revenge. To make it known, he is wrong and I'm right and I'm justifying myself right now. He had every opportunity to do this. He could have even put it off as the Lord's plan because it says the Lord put them to sleep. He could have even said, no, this was the Lord's plan. I'm just getting justice. He's a God of justice. I could have gotten this right here and right now. But he had the fear of the Lord in him. There's a healthy fear of the Lord, guys where we're so afraid to do anything that could possibly remove us from the presence of the Lord. He was too afraid to leave the presence of God by putting his hand on an anointed one. And even you look at what is, what is the word Christ? It translates to anointed one. And what is Christian? Little Christs, so little anointed ones. Our brothers and our sisters our little anointed ones? What if we had the same character that David had? I will not put my hand on an anointed one. And maybe killing somebody doesn't really resonate for you, hopefully, but 
let's, let's twist it to today's day and age. I won't put my tongue against a little anointed one. I won't speak death over little anointed ones because that's God's anointed one. He's judge. I'm going to let him deal with it. And don't we know he will deal with it. He will deal with it. There will be nothing that goes unseen, unnoticed by the Lord, but it's his job to see it and notice it, not you. How many of us can say that we responded as well as David in these moments? When we had our opportunity to get our justice, when we had our opportunity to get our name in the clear, as long as my name's in the clear, I don't care who has to pay for it, who can say that they had that level of heart posture and character? And I would challenge us today to be moved by David's heart, by his heart posture of I have too much fear of the Lord to touch his children and his anointed ones. It comes back to trust. We have to trust that our father is actually good and he is who he says he is and he actually will take care of these things. We don't have to be the ones that step up and take control and say, I'm gonna deal with it myself. We actually have to trust that he's good enough to deal with it for us on our behalf because he actually cares about that person so much more than you do. He cares about their freedom. He's going to take care of it. What's funny is in verse 12, where it says that the Lord put the whole army to sleep. It's really weird. It's like, Lord, were you encouraging him to kill him? Because that's a little strange. I don't think that that's what the Lord was doing. I think he was actually testing David's heart. If you were at women's conference, I talked about this a lot, about testing and how this is a good thing. <laughs> testing of our heart does not mean he's a bad, a bad dad or he's mean or he's cold. It actually means the opposite. Imagine any teacher on the planet who doesn't give their students tests. That's a horrible teacher because they're not giving the student an opportunity to see what information they've retained and what they haven't. So he was giving David an opportunity here to see what have you retained of me? What of me has gotten in you and what has not? I believe the Lord put the army to sleep to test him. You're going to have a lot of opportunities to be tested in your faith with the Lord. When you're a child in the faith, when you're young in the faith, I really believe as a new believer, your only job is to learn how to be loved, how to be loved, to learn that God is actually a precious father. He's a really good father. I say to new believers, this is your only job. Learn how to not work and learn how to receive. <laughs> you don't have to earn love anymore. You get to just receive. But the mature believer, as you mature, if you don't know how to handle testing well, you've got some maturing to do. <laughs> It is his goodness that he gives us these opportunities to see how much of him is in us and how much is not. And I would even say that you're tested far more than you think you are. I would say sometimes on a daily basis, we're tested. A lot of wasted opportunities, guys. Every time you get offended, every time somebody comes against you, you have an opportunity to see how much of him is in me and how much of them do I still need to get? <laughs> I want to go back um, to the story in the beginning about the young boy. For those of you who didn't pick up on it, <laughs> the young boy is actually my father. The young boy is my dad who ran away at 15, four generations of addicts, all the way down to me. I as well, at 15 years old, this is kind of scary how similar it is, what played out. 15 years old, I had fallen into addiction. My dad came home, blackout wasted, and I was done. What happened that day, I was done. 
I said, this will never happen again. I'm out. At 15 years old, I couch hopped for years until I got saved. (laughs) Until I met Jesus. I had a real, tangible encounter with Jesus. The first of that four generations, Jesus had not been invited into any one of those people's hearts until me. For years, I grew with the Lord, but I still wasn't free. I was an addict and I wasn't free, and I was really good at hiding it. I was really good at hiding it, and so nobody knew, but I did. And I would constantly say, Lord, I know you, I'm growing with you, I know the word, I'm having encounters, this is weird, why am I not free? And over and over and over again, the Lord would only ever bring me back. Anytime I would say, can you just please take this addiction away, God? It would make my life so much easier. Make it so much easier to love you if I wasn't addicted to drugs. It would help me so much. He would always bring me back to my dad. Every time, he would bring me back to my father. He would say, you gotta let him go. You gotta forgive him. Guys, deep pain. This is not a little forgiveness. I had deep, deep wounds, deep pain of a little girl that longed for a father who was never there, who chose alcohol over me. On my wedding day, my dad didn't show up because he was drunk. I begged him. I said, I want you there. Could you please come? As long as you can get sober, could you come? I just want you to show up sober. And I waited until the final second, the final second, it was time to walk out. They were opening the doors and I looked and he wasn't there. My dad wasn't there for the birth of my first son. Never got to meet him because he was in jail at that time. I had deep, deep pain, deep wounds, big things that I had to let go and release. And a piece of my forgiveness journey This is really sweet. You know how I told you that the Lord speaks to me in pictures? The first time I ever tried to heal from that weight of him not being at my wedding. It's a big deal for a little girl to not have her dad show up. We were young when we got married, so I wanted him there. And I remember the day that I tried to, I was like, okay, Lord, I think I'm finally ready to go into this memory. I'm finally ready to invite you into this. I need to forgive my dad for the fact that he didn't show up that day. And the Lord in his kindness, I think it was actually a night at Breakthrough. This is years and years and years and years ago. Um, Isaac Raj was preaching and he led a moment at the end of service. He gave this moment of, he basically led the room into inner healing and he said, I think that there's people who have unforgiveness in their hearts and tonight you're gonna release those people. So I was like, okay, Lord, you're making it really easy for me. So I, I'm laying down in the back of the room and I'm going into this memory. And I say, Lord, where do I even start? Where do I begin? And he said, you start with me. And he puts this image in my mind as clear as day. It's like it was literally as I'm seeing you guys right now. He puts this image in my mind. It's, I'm back at my wedding day. I can feel all the emotions of that moment where I'm just anxiously looking outside, anxiously looking at the door. Is he going to come through the door? And I see this image as I'm feeling all of this. It's like I'm there again. But instead of my dad, Jesus runs in in a tux. He looked very handsome. He runs in in this tux, and I go, you're here? And he's like, of course I'm here. I wouldn't miss this for the world. I wouldn't miss this for anything. There's nowhere I'd rather be than here right now. Guys, I was a hot mess. I cried for like a week after that. (laughs) Literally like a week. I was in the back just sobbing hysterically, and I was like, whoa, you really do fill every hole doesn't mean that I just forget what my dad did. It's a reoccurring choice. It's a reoccurring choice. Oh, he was, can you imagine the shame that my father felt by not making it to his daughter's wedding day? When you're able to move yourself out of yourself for a moment and picture that person, how the Lord sees them, I can only imagine what my father was going through. Trying his best to get sober so he could show up. I was so moved in my heart for love towards my dad.
that person that I was talking about earlier where I was trying to forgive and the Lord gave me an image of a boy who was young in a corner. It was my dad when I was trying to forgive him. The Lord gave me an understanding of him as a young boy. He said, understand the pain that he went through. He doesn't want to do what he's doing. He's hurt and he doesn't know me. My process of forgiveness was not instantaneous. It was actually years. My, I would say, you have to give forgiveness towards so many things throughout your life. You're going to have to work through forgiveness in so many areas. But a lot of us have one decent one, at least. And this was my one biggie, was my dad. It's what was holding me back for years. And my journey of forgiving him was literally years. And it wasn't apathetic, passive years of every so often I think about it and I'll say I forgive you here and there to just check my check off the list. It was years of intentional choice of I'm leaning in to forgive my father in this as I invited Jesus into memory after memory after memory. When I stopped running from it, I stopped holding judgment over my dad and what he did and I just said, I just need to release myself so that I can be right in my heart. Later on with that story, with me getting set free from my addiction, it looked a lot like God wanting to address unforgiveness before the addiction. Because what was the unforgiveness? It was the open door that the enemy was using to keep me in that place. The unforgiveness against my dad was the root issue. The drugs wasn't the issue. <laughs> yes, it's bad, don't do drugs. But <laughs> the issue was that I was holding unforgiveness against my father. And that was the open door where all of the pain, the addiction, the cycle was continuing through that. And so by putting my foot in the ground and by saying, I choose with my will to forgive my father and I wash this with the blood of Jesus, it couldn't go any further. It stopped with me. That cycle stopped. It cannot touch my children. It cannot go generations past. It is done. Wow, you guys really like that. <laughs> it's done. And the only way it's signed, sealed, delivered, done is by forgiveness. You can, you can behaviorally modify yourself, but the issue, a lot of the times, I believe with these cycles, is you're holding on to something that you're not supposed to. And so how kind was God to not just heal me from my addiction the second I got saved? How kind was he to know, yes, I'm going to heal you from that daughter, don't worry, but I've got something more important to address first. Because if I don't heal this, more things are just going to keep funneling through. You've still got an open door where the enemy, you may not have a wide open door because you're following the Lord you're doing all the right things, you're not watching the bad shows, you're not listening to the bad music, great, but he still has a little crack where he can get his foot through, where he can still get lies through when we hold in unforgiveness. About a year ago from this point, I received a call from my dad. And at this point, I had already done all the forgiveness work. I had let him go completely from all the offenses. And so let me tell you how sweet it was to receive, finally, after years of longing for a relationship with my dad, to receive that phone call when I had already fully released him from all the hurt, all the pain, everything he had done, everything he could do. I had gone to such a place of love for my father that offense could not ever touch me again in terms of relationship with him. And he calls me, and for the first time, he's remorseful. I had never heard my dad apologize in my whole life. And for the first, and I, he didn't apologize for everything, and that's okay. But he said, I'm sorry that I haven't been here for you the way that you deserved a father to be. Guys, can I tell you how life-changing it is 
to not be bound by this weird lie that we have to receive an apology to forgive somebody. Guys, that's like a jail cell. To believe that somebody has to come to you with the perfect laid out poetic apology. I am so sorry that I did this and this and this and this and tell you everything you're wanting to hear in order to release them. That's a garbage lie from the enemy. It's not good. We have the ability right here and now to release ourselves from the traps of unforgiveness. And that thought is keeping you there. Us being obedient to the Lord should not be dependent on how that person who wronged you acts. So when he called me and he was remorseful, my response didn't have to be, oh, thanks dad, I'll take it and I'll think about if I wanna forgive you or not. It's like I was able to take it and go, oh my gosh, dad, I've been waiting for this call for so long. I love you so much. I have nothing but love for you in my heart. This, what I didn't know was this started six months of the most beautiful relationship Six months of, I, I would say the first time I've ever had relationship with my dad, where we would talk almost every week for this six month period. In this six months, he came to know Jesus. He came to know Jesus in a real way. He was hearing God's voice. He was experiencing repentance, where he would call me and say, I was talking to the Lord and I felt like I just needed to apologize to you about this. It's just like, just like how I talked about earlier, in the presence of the Lord, there's repentance. You should be moved into repentance. And um, at this time, of course, I'm carrying my, my youngest son, Elian. I was pregnant with him. Uh, my dad still hadn't met my older son, August, at this point. And during these six months, we had talked the whole time of like, dad, if you could get sober for three months, I just, I just need you to be sober for three months and you can come stay with us. You can come meet my kids. I just need you to be sober. That's all. You can come to our church. You can stay however long you want. If you want to stay for a few months, absolutely. Like we'll, we'll take care of your food. We'll do everything. And so that was the plan. He was going to come in May. He was going to come meet my kids. And so, he did the three months, which is amazing. He made it three months completely sober, and I will never stop being proud of him for that. Um, I'm probably going to cry, and that's okay, because crying's good. But at the, three, the end of those three months, my dad sadly had a bad night, and he had a binger, and he lost his life that night. He fell, and he lost his life right before he was going to come. But here's the deal. I got to experience my dad finding Jesus in those six months. I will treasure every second of every phone call that I had with him in those six months. I can't tell you how grateful I am that I did the forgiveness work before that point. Because I know a lot of people where they lose somebody that they were holding unforgiveness against and they can't even grieve because they're spending years trying to work through the trauma after the person's passed. Do you know how hard it is to forgive a dead person? It's really hard. <laughs> I am so grateful that when my dad passed, I didn't have to go back and do any work of, oh, he hurt me here, he hurt me here. I was able to just be a daughter grieving her dad. Forgiveness gave me that. It gave me the opportunity to be able to just grieve. I can't even tell you how confusing that season was for me. It was four days after my son was born, my dad died. To feel, it's crazy what the human body can encounter at once. We can feel unbelievable joy of new life and at the same time mourn devastating death at the same time. But I know that my dad is sitting with his maker and I know that he is in a place of no more suffering. 
He's not feeling the weight of his terrible, terrible addiction anymore. He's completely set free, completely made new, completely in love with Jesus. I could not have led him to the Lord if I hadn't have forgiven him. It was too painful. But because I had released him, guys, you just don't know what's gonna happen. I hate to be that person talking about death, but it's like you just don't know what's going to happen. And you deserve more than holding on to unforgiveness when you could be free right here and right now. That's what the Lord has for you. He has freedom and not just a little bit of freedom. I'm talking about freedom like the person who hurt me so deeply in such a big way. I had more love for him than I've ever had for anybody else. That is where God can take you. It's just like that verse, from death into life. We move from death into life every second of every day. It's not a one-time encounter. It's a never-ending process of deeper sanctification and looking more like Jesus. The more you look like him, the more you have to forgive. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. like I just bared my soul to you guys. It's okay, we're a family. All right, so here's what we're gonna do. I didn't just preach this for fun. This very, it's heavy. I put my heart into this because I believe that God really has something for us today. I believe that there's some of us that maybe have some hurts and some offenses that we need to address that the Lord wants to come into. It could be so little. It's all the same root. Doesn't matter how big or small the offense was, it's the same root. We have some little things and some big things that God wants to address today. They're all just as important to Him. All I ask is that as we pray, that you would just be open. You would just make a choice right now that I'm gonna be open in my heart. Because let me tell you, a lot of you probably don't even know who you have unforgiveness against. You're probably not even aware. A lot of the times we bury these things down so deep to where we can't find them and nobody can find them. But the Lord can. He wants to find them because he knows it's keeping you in bondage. So I'm gonna pray. I ask that you would just tell the Holy Spirit, everybody right now, just tell the Holy Spirit, just get quiet, get alone with him. Doesn't matter that other people are here. Doesn't matter who's here. He's here. And just say, Holy Spirit, I'm willing. All you have to do is be willing and he'll take care of the rest. He just wants your willingness. You care about us too much, Jesus, to leave any stone unturned. We may be willing to hide it, but you are not. You're not willing to pretend, not if it's keeping your child from being free. Holy Spirit, I ask for your presence to fall in this room right now, Jesus. Would you fill every inch of this room with your presence right now, Jesus? every square inch your presence is the safest place we could ever be this is the safest place we could ever be you came here today to heal your children to encounter your children this is not just a basic Sunday you're here you're here and you want to move 
Holy Spirit move throughout the room. Would you bring memories to people's minds right now, God? Pictures, names, faces. Would you bring to mind the things that people need to leave at your feet today? It's okay if you don't feel like you can, you choose to. You say, I don't know what to do with this, but I will lay this at your feet, Jesus. I will lay this person at your feet, Jesus. I will lay this memory at your feet, Jesus, no matter how much it hurts. I'll let you come in because you're so trustworthy and gentle. Speak to people's minds right now, Jesus. Hearts that have been cold and numb, you're bringing them back to life. You're turning the lights on. You're turning the lights on. The things that we've kept in the dark, you're turning the lights on. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness. Would you show your heart to the people in the room that are searching for it right now, God? Open your hands and release the control to him. 